ready to study the Word of God will be at Matthew 24, 22. But we're going to offer up a blessing for Thomas and uh, get ourselves ready to study the Word of God. Let us pray. Father, we're so thankful for Thomas. We're so thankful for those who, who teach children. Father, we're so thankful for the children that you have, have given to us. Father, this day is set aside to honor mothers, but on, obviously we're supposed to honor our mother and father all the days of our life, that our days might be long upon this earth. And so, Father, we thank you for those of, who have brought forth. Father, we thank you for those who have acted in that regard. Father, we just thank you for the young people because they are indeed your blessing. We pray today that uh, this will be a time of blessing between the student and the teacher. We pray also that it be a time of blessing as we open up your word and focus upon it. For we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, as I mentioned, open to Matthew 24 and verse 22. Matthew 24, 22. And we are continuing our study of the Olivet Discourse. Now, the Olivet Discourse is uh, uh, quite a picture because it is... Uh, uh, prophecy of the last days. When Jesus is speaking, he's speaking, this is the last week, the week of the cross, and he has taken Matthew, Mark, uh, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the wrong four, but Peter, Andrew, James, and John taking, up, taking them up the Mount of Olives, and they started asking questions. They started asking, what's going to be the signs of your coming, the end of the age? What are these things going to look at? Now, they're asking about the end of the age of Israel. They may not fully grasp it at this point because they are not quite... The, the, the church age still is a mystery to them at this point in time. But what they're asking is, when is the end of the age? Now, Daniel asked the same question in chapter 12. Other people have asked the same question, the end of the age. So the Lord sets out to answer them. And in the first part of the passages because it's found in Luke 21, Matthew 24, and Mark 13. In the first part of Luke especially, he's talking to them about the early church. And that goes all the way up until the time of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the destruction of Israel in 70 AD, and the disbursement in all the nations. That was a fulfillment of prophecy as well. But the Lord is known as the prophet. He is the prophet like unto Moses. So when he speaks, he is giving prophetic information. He's telling these four disciples that they'll tell the other people, the other disciples. He's telling them what is going to be markers of this time. And then in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 especially, he launches off to what is going to be not just the first century, but what's going to characterize the church itself. Now, again, they can't quite put it all together at that point in time, but they will. Uh, they're kind of like some students in classes who sleep through the classes because these disciples, although they seem to be the, the best of the batch, they're still kind of clueless in a lot of regards at this moment in time. A couple of days later, he said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he will bring to mind all that I have told you. So they'll be able to remember the things that he had taught them for the three and a half years. So he taught them that there are going to be certain things happening, increasing, progressing over the course of the church age. 
And these are the beginning of birth pangs. The beginning of birth pangs will include famines, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, and all those things. Then he starts going into talking about the tribulation period. The tribulation period is a time of great trouble and distress. Uh, the chart over, we have the big one over there and the smaller ones on the back table. Give an idea of what happens during this tribulational period. And this tribulational period is a defined period of time. We have to keep that in mind because the verse we're looking at today uh, doesn't seem to fit. And how does it fit? Because it does fit because there's no, there's no uh, problem, there's no confusion really in the Word of God. It's on our part. But whenever we start looking at what, it, what does it say, how long is the tribulation? Well, it's known as Daniel's 70th week. And we know it's a week of years he's talking about. It's a seven-year time period prophesied in Daniel 9.27. The, the details that go with that we've been through many times. But <clears throat> we've also seen internal evidence within the book of Revelation and in the study, the topical study of prophecy that it is divided into two periods of time. The first half of the tribulation, seven-year period, is three and a half years. 1260 days the second half of the tribulation is also 1260 days i find it interesting that god likes things to fit neatly in a box in some ways and he just lays them out where they just fit beautifully they fit perfectly it's it's neat to, to find and part of why he does that is whenever when he starts drawing the lines for us like this it is once again further proof that he is who he says he is because Satan's spending all of his time trying to prove that God is not who he says he is. And so when the Lord gives a specific prophecy like not one of these stones will be left on top of another, it has to literally be fulfilled. Otherwise, he's made a mistake. If he's made a mistake, he's not God. So that's what Satan is trying to figure out is some way to get God to compromise himself. Well, it's not... Not going to happen, not going to work. He's been trying it now for millennia, and it's still not going to work. But the, we have been told, and that's what we're going to understand in this verse, because you've got to let Scripture interpret itself. Many people decide, well, hey, that's pretty cool. I'm going to go see what the commentaries have to say. And a lot of times the commentaries don't bring in the other verses and try to, to analyze them. And I've, I've heard some interesting interpretations of this passage. But what we find out from Matthew twenty four twenty one, the verse just in front of this, is for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the wor world until now, nor ever will. Now he's talking about tribulation. You'll be delivered up to, to tribulation. That you'll be, to the Jews, they'll be spread into all the nations of the earth. The gospel will be preached to all the nations of the earth. Then the end will come. There have been things that he has said uh, multiple times in different ways. And he's preparing the Jews for what happens during the tribulation. So here is information given by the prophet. Whenever you find certain things happening like the abomination of desolation setting in the holy place which is an idol of the Antichrist that's sitting in the holy place of the temple. When you see that happening, get out of Jerusalem. Get out of there because things are getting ready to happen. Pray that it won't be 
Your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Then there will be great tribulation. So contextually, what we have done is move from the early part of the trib to the latter part of the trib, known as the great tribulation. Then we have verse 22. Verse 22 says... Unless those days had been cut short. Uh, <clears throat> the word unless those days, chi a may i is the word here. And if not the. And if not the days. That's literally how it's translated. Had been cut short. Now the word cut short is kalabao. K-O-L-O-B-O long O. It's only used four times. It's used twice in this verse. It's used twice in Mark 13, 20, which is the parallel verse in the Gospel of Mark. So the four times that the word is used are all within the same context. So that, right away, when you start studying and looking at stuff, and you find an interesting word, kind of a unique word that is brought here into this context, you start saying something's a little bit different than normal. Now, <clears throat> the word is not found outside of this, this context. Now, it says, unless they had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Okay? Trib great tribulation is going to be a time of pressure, unlike anything that's happened in the history of the world. For the sake of the elect, that's the word eklektos, which is used 22 times. It means the ones who are called out or elect or chosen. Those days will be cut short. Now, that would... That would be a description of believers the believers during the tribulation he's saying that the believers during the tribulation that there's going to be a shortening of the time but you have to ask in what regard because multiple places it says it's going to last seven years 2,520 days it's the first half is 1260 second half is 1260 it's called seven years it's called first half is called a time times and half a time in Daniel it's called three and a half years or 42 months in uh, the book of Revelation for the second half so over and over again you have the statement that this time is going to be seven years. In the first reading of this, you might think the number of the days of the tribulation were shortened. In other words, it's no longer going to be 2,520. But this is the only verse that says that. So why would you, why would you shorten it? Look for another option. A total number of days are specified for the trip. And that's what I've just mentioned. Revelation 11.3 says, I'll grant authority to my two witnesses... They will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now this is Moses and Elijah uh, right after the rapture. <clears throat> they are there south of Jerusalem. They are prophesying in the wilderness. They shut up the skies for three and a half years. Bring drought, drought, drought black drought. Well, they bring drought on the land is what they'll do. Okay, <clears throat> it's going to be a bad time. And when somebody comes after him, they call down fire out of heaven. You know, it seemed like Elijah did that early on in his life when he called down fire and, and destroyed the uh, sacrifices and the, the uh, worshipers of Baal and the, the priests of Baal and all that. He took them out. It seemed like he called about uh, for a, a drought or famine. Okay, they had the power in order to, to do that. Now, uh, Revelation 12, 6, right in the next chapter... So we'll keep a context to the book of Revelation says, And the woman fled into the wilderness. 
The woman is Israel. Why would she flee into the wilderness? Because the abomination and desolation is setting where it shouldn't be. What's the command? Get out of Jerusalem. So she fled into the wilderness. For how long did she flee into the wilderness? Where she had a place prepared for, prepared by God, so that there in the wilderness she might be nourished 1,260 days. Three and a half years, 42 prophetic months. Prophecy months are 30-day months, 360-day years, and you have to work things accordingly. So <clears throat> a total number of days are specified for the tribulation. So it appears that the day shortened from 24 to 16 hours. Why say that? Because I know that's, that's viewed as a stretch and people go, Oh, that's too crazy to believe. Well, it's hard to believe God spoke and brought the heavens into existence too. But let's, let's just go with what God says and not what man says. Revelation chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. And he's studying the judgments of the trib. Chapter 6 is the seal judgments. 8 and 9 are the trumpet judgments. The trumpet judgments take place right around the midpoint of the trib. They'll start about six months before the exact middle point of the trib. Around the beginning of the third year. Between the third and the three and a half year time period. And the angel sounded. These are the trumpet judgments. It says the fourth angel. The fourth trumpet judgment sounded. And will just read what it says. A third of the sun. A third of the moon. And a third of the stars were struck. And who struck them? They're struck from an outside source, right? That's what the book says. And the night in the same way. And I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, <clears throat> Woe, woe, woe for to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet, 5, 6, and 7, and of the three angels that are about to sound. So what happens right near the midpoint is he, he basically shuts them off, a third of the sun. Now one way to shut off a third of the sun is to let it not shine for a third of the day. How could that happen? How could, that, how could he shorten the days, literally, because that's the question we're asking. How could he shorten the days in a literal way and uh, fulfill this and yet fulfill the other prophecies? He, Satan loves to have passages like this because he thinks he's got God over a barrel whenever he makes a statement like this. He actually doesn't. Now, only through divine intervention does any life exist on earth because you start talking to physicists and people and they go, how's that going to happen? What's going to happen? What's that going to do to the gravitational pull? The word kalabao, by the way, is a, a word that does mean to take a... Um, to uh, shorten in that sense of time. Said when it's used extra biblically and outside of the Bible. So, again, spiritual issues supersede the laws of physics. We have to be able to remember that because when God chooses to do something, He's the one in His sovereignty declared certain physical characteristics as the laws of physics. But he is the king. So he's not bound by it. When you get to the end of the tribulation, 
it fascinates me because there be signs in the heavens. We're told that. There's going to be signs on earth. There are going to be stars falling out of the heavens. It's already happened with the second and third trumpet judgment, third trumpet judgment. Formwood fell out of heaven. So you already got problems all over the place. And it appears that the, the rotation of the earth is sped up and we base a, a day on the rotations of the earth. So that's how we do it. So this is one way that he could do it. Does he have another way? He could. I don't see another way, but I'm not infinitely, I don't, I'm not omniscient either. But if, if somebody could show me another model, I'd be happy to take a look at it and see, see what it says. But unless the days were cut short, he can cut short not the number, but the hours in the day. And you say, well, that defies the laws of physics. Talk to God about it. It's all I know what to say. He can do whatever he wants to. Now, <clears throat> fewer hours to survive is a real blessing on God's people. Have you ever said, I wish the day had more hours in it? Now, if you ever do that again, I'm going to take you to India. And we'll put you on a plane. And then when you come back, you'll experience a 36-hour day. Actually, 35-and-a-half-hour day. And you will never again ask for more hours in the day. It won't happen. Now, <clears throat> 24 hours in a day is plenty. You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you, you go through. It's a, so you fly over to. It's, it's just an extremely long day. And there are times it would have been nice if it had only been 16 hours back instead of 36 hours back. Fewer hours to survive is a real blessing on God's people. The days are still the same, but the hours are less. There's no indication this prophecy was ever revealed before this discourse. There's no indication that it's anywhere else in the scripture. Thus, Jesus is functioning in his office as prophet as God progressively reveals his plan. Now, Jesus doesn't have to repeat other prophecies because he is a prophet. He can tell us new things. And right there on that Mount of Olives, he told Peter, Andrew, James, and John, he gave them some new information about things that were going to happen. No prophecy, according to Second Peter, first of all, no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So <clears throat> here is the... The Lord speaking, and he makes this statement, okay? And we can think about it, we can mull it over, still be friends if you don't agree with it, and that's, that's all fine. But what about, what's the big deal here about the days being cut short? Because if you find yourself in the middle of the tribulation, you want the time shortened one way or another. You know how to miss the tribulation? On this side of the rapture, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you get to miss it all together. That's not a bad deal. It'd be much better to be with a great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12 that's, that's mentioned looking down on what's going on in the arena than it would be to be out in the arena because that's not going to be a, a, a fun time. Now in verse 22 in Matthew, we move to the, the next verse and it says, Then, when? During the great tribulation. So by interpretation, he's saying there are going to be some things happening. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ. 
Again, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a word for the Messiah. Here is HaMashiach, would be in the Hebrew, the Hochristos in the Greek. Here, here is the Messiah. Or, there he is. Then Jesus says, do not believe him. Now, this, is a, this construction is the weak negative with an aorist tense. It says, don't believe him even for a second. Don't be misled. Don't get off course. Because, you know, when Jesus returns at the second advent, there's going to be no mistake about it. The world's going to know it. And that's what the scripture reveals. If somebody says, hey, he's holding a crusade over there. He's got a tent put up. Why don't you just come? Messiah's here. Go see him. Or, hey, he's going to do a healing service over here. Go over here, and he's going to take care of all your aches and pains and ills and all that. And Jesus is saying, it's not going to happen. But what has already been revealed is so magnificent that for anybody in the trib to say that means they don't know the Scripture. And if you find yourself left behind like those series talk about, left behind after the rapture, you better learn the book really fast. You better study it. You better learn it. You better carry it with you. You better read it when you wake up. Read it before you go to bed. And because you need to know where you have to be in order to survive the tribulation. And verse 24, he says, for false Christ. False Christ is, um, is an interesting word. It's a, it's a double word. Pseudo Christos. Christos means Christ, pseudo means lie, a false Christ. The word's only used two times in the New Testament. The other place that's used is Mark 13, 22 in the parallel passage. So the Lord is saying there's some unique things that's going to be going on here, false messiahs and pseudo prophetes. That word is used 11 times, false prophet. Prophetes is prophet, pseudo means a lying prophet. Will arise... Now, that's for people that like promises, because that's a promise. It's not may arise. It's not a subjunctive. It's a pure future. He's giving another prophecy. False messiahs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. So as to mislead, this word is planao, which means to deceive. You can translate it mislead, deceive, fake out of their shoes. That's what he's talking about there. To, to, so to, to mislead, if possible, it's important to note right here. It says, even the elect, talking about those who are saved during that time frame, this is a first class condition in the Greek. In the Greek it says, if possible, and it is. Now, some take that to say it's not. That's a second-class condition in the Greek, if it's possible, and it's not. Oh, but it is. The elect can be misled during the tribulation. Believers can be misled during the tribulation. It's the believers, up to the believers, to figure out what to do and what not to do, and then comply with what God has said. So, in order to mislead, if possible, even the elect... Now, these are specific instructions for the Great Tribulation. Quite honestly, this is the context. Uh, he delivers them up to a time of Great Tribulation. That's what he's talking about. The false Christ, the false prophets after that. And what he's saying is that there'll be almost believable lies will abound. 
and they have a potential to deceive the elect. Even the elect, there's the potential there to be deceived. And why do we know this is going to happen? Because it's found elsewhere. It's found elsewhere in 2 Thessalonians 2.11, which talks about the rise of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, who takes his seat in the temple and proclaims himself to be a god. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it says there will be a strong delusion placed on mankind. Translated, the devil's going to have free reign during the tribulation. The Holy Spirit, who is inside of all believers, is taken out of the way at the rapture. So you think it's bad now. When you have evil with a free reign, because Christians, even as goofy as we are, are a restraining force at, at, at this point in time. We are a restrainer, but you take... The Christians out. You have about 6 billion people on the planet or 7. I lose track because nobody knows for sure except God how many there are. And they say there's about 1 out of 6 that are Christians, at least profess to be a Christian. And that includes anybody that calls on the name of Christ. Supposing that's all correct, you had about 1 out of 6 people gone off the planet at the rapture of the church. Okay? And... Where they are, they're restrainers. But when the restrainer is gone, the Holy Spirit, see, will still be around in the trib, but he'll not be indwelling believers like he does us. He'll be upon believers like he did in the age of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all of them. Now, <clears throat> but there'll be a great delusion. And it'll get worse during the tribulation. And he's saying there are going to be people saying, hey, you can come over here. I, we've got the Messiah. We've found him over here. And then you're going to have a false prophet saying, yes, I am a prophet of, of, of the Almighty, or I'm a prophet of whatever, and I authenticate this man, like prophets usually did. Only they're going to be false prophets. Now you're going to know they're a false prophet. Well, Moses was inspired to write what we know is Deuteronomy 13 and 18. So they've known a long, long time, especially if you're a Jew, how to identify a false prophet. And it says, if this prophet tells you things, and he has signs and wonders and all that other stuff, and these things come true. And then he says, follow other gods. Kill him. That's what the law said. Get him out of your midst. Purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy 18, that may have been 18 that I just mentioned, one of those passages makes the comment that if he says something, it doesn't happen. He's a false prophet. So we're going to know these false prophets by one of two things. They're either going to give prophecies that don't happen, or they're going to give a prophecy that does come true, and then they're going to say, follow other gods. And who are they going to say, follow? The Antichrist. He's proclaimed himself as a god. So <clears throat> the warning is connected directly to the beast who will hold the economic power. Revelation 13 is uh, the prophecy about the beast out of the sea, which is the Antichrist rising up out of the sea of nations. He'll be a Gentile. And the beast out of the land, which is the false prophet that lives in the land of Israel. So the false prophet will tell people that the Antichrist is the real deal. 
anti-messiah, the opposite messiah, a different messiah. Because Christos, again, means messiah. The false prophet authenticates the antichrist. And how does he do it? With lying signs and wonders. And how does he do these signs and wonders? By the power of Satan. That's how he does it. I know I'm packing a whole lot of stuff into this at one time. Almost that whole chart so far uh, as to what we're doing. But that's, what, that's what's going on here. They will know these people are false because of their message. Now what kind of messiahs would you kind of look for in uh, this day and time? I think maybe you'd look for some messiah that might stop the world from changing climate from time to time. Uh, you'd look for some kind of Messiah to keep the ocean levels from rising and swallowing up your beachfront house. I think you'd look for some kind of Messiah that would put sunglasses on the sun so it wouldn't cook us with the ozone layer. People would look for things to preserve them physically. But <clears throat> spiritual deliverance, uh, false messiahs usually claim salvation from physical problems without any real solution for the spiritual problems. And the spiritual problems with man, we know, are far more, far greater. Now, what if you were the Antichrist, which Revelation 17 indicates is a man from the past that has been brought back, okay, just like Moses and Elijah. Don't know exactly how the Lord will do that, but that's what the, the book says. And so he comes back and... What He proclaims himself a God. Now notice in 2 Thessalonians 2 he says a God, not the God. The Antichrist doesn't say he is the God in the flesh. He's a God. Hmm, what does that lend itself to? What religion? What world religion? Hinduism. New age thought. That is reincarnation. I mean, he's got a lie with a strong delusion that he can sell unlike any time ever before in history. If he is a man back from the past, he can say, follow me and I will give you eternal life. I'll show you how to do that. We can make your clone. We can make your hologram. We can make your whatever. We can take your DNA and replicate it and then we can put all your brains and memories on a zip drive and put them into this new creature. I don't know how you do it. That's massive speculation. But what I'm saying is that he has a way to say, I am the culmination of reincarnation. You follow the way I do things. And guess what's going to happen to you? Now what's he just done? No matter how many prophecies he gives or signs he performs, he has just substituted a false god in the process. And he's going to do that because you, you put all the data together, Revelation 16, you find out that the people, during the bold judgments, just before the second advent, it says they blaspheme the God of the heaven. They know where the judgments are coming from. They know where the seal judgments came from, the trumpet judgments, the thunder judgments, the bowl judgments. They know where they're coming from. And they still, and it says, and they did not repent. Now, how hard-headed can people get? They did not repent. Instead, they blasphemed the God of the heaven. 
False messiahs usually claim salvation. Characteristics of false messengers. First, the inside does not match the outside, as they are wolves in sheep's clothing. The Lord described these false teachers and prophets for us. Matthew seven fifteen, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. There's a whole lot of them floating around. A lot of them usually get money to show up on TV. But not all of them float around in that, in that way. And not every one of them who's on TV is a false prophet. I'm not saying that at all. But what they do is find ways to appear one way. And really they're, what does it say? They're ravenous wolves. They want to consume you. They want to take all of your resources. They want to use you for their own fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. That's what they want to do. You'll know them by their fruits. They'll eventually be exposed for who they are. You'll notice their words do not match their motives as they employ a tremendous power of persuasion. From Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. The false prophets are real good at speaking flattering words. Paul warned against that a couple of times in the New Testament. Watch out for flattering words. When they come to you with a salesman's technique of, oh, you're the greatest person that's ever lived. I know you are. I uh, used to sell things door to door. I was taught the psychology of selling and how you use things and first you want to ingratiate yourself with people and all that we should be nice people it should be who we are but we don't need to be phonies in the process and so they they teach you how to use flattering words in order to win the match if you will rather than being just a an honest individual um i called on a guy one time a long time ago I was back in seminary and I walked in and, and he looked at me and he said I know you're a great person I know you're a great person because I'm a great person and he wanted me to go to work for him uh, selling something else other than what I was selling and I said well the argument about it being a great person, that might be an interesting argument as to whether or not we're both great because we're all born in sin. <laughs> he didn't want to hear the gospel, so he decided real fast, I didn't need to be there any longer, and he had something else to do. So you can, <laughs> you know, as a Christian, you, you might as well have fun with them and try to plant a seed that might take off later on. Their intent is deceit and fraud. Bar Jesus is the topic of Acts chapter 13, that particular passage. Deceit and fraud. They just want to win. Win at any cost is part of their, of their game, part of the false prophets. It's interesting how sometimes people just make up stuff and exaggerate things. Exaggeration is just, it's viewed as a figure of speech, but it's another form of a lie. Sometimes it's known as a as an exaggeration, like you know, and intended that that way as a figure of speech. To but when it's used to sell something, then it becomes a problem. Uh, this is the sunniest day I've ever seen in my life. That's probably an exaggeration, unless you can remember every day of your life along along the line. But 
It's not something that's designed to deceive and defraud other people. They convert, covertly introduce their falsehood. Now, 2 Peter chapter 2, why don't you turn there to the first verse, if you would. 2 Peter 2, 1. <clears throat> this is a uh, important passage for the times that we live in. <clears throat> and yet, to read it carefully, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people. Now, Peter is writing about the rise of false prophets during Israel, the time of Israel, also during the time of, of um, the church. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now, those false teachers, if you study the New Testament, you find usually there are people that tell you you have to be saved by works. In some form. That's false teaching. It says, They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, heresies are things that divide. <clears throat> They're things that pull the body of Christ apart. And while there is valid reason to uh, divide at times, uh, uh, Romans 16 deals with it. Those that are teaching heretical uh, doctrine. They'll secretly introduce destructive heresies. And there's a lot of ways to do that within a, within a church. Um, bring the world in. Start doing the things of the world. One that comes to mind is yoga. And you say, oh, all, all yoga is bad. No. Some people use it simply for exercise. But whenever your instructor gives you a mantra to repeat over and over again, run. Because they've just brought Buddhism or Hinduism, transcendental meditation, they've just brought it into the system. It could be used for exercise by Christians, no problem with that. But when you start saying the same word over and over, we had some friends in Bartlesville, and lady got into it, and she was studying yoga, and she's got this, this mantra, and she's got her mind cleared, and she got her mind cleared, and, and a little voice said, Hello. <laughs> yeah, so she ended <laughs> that meditation, if you will, because that little voice has said hello. She said, I don't want anything to do with that voice. And wisely, she got out of it. But when the spirits start talking back, got to be careful. Yoga, exercise, no sweat. But the problem is, Secretly introduce destructive heresies. Even denying, and this is classic, the master who bought them. Even denying the master who bought them. Now, why is that important? Because in the occult, the occult has a series of of hierarchy within the occult. At the top is the solar logos, which is an impersonal force that drives the universe. Sound familiar? Okay. Below that is, guess what? Lucifer. Below that is the 12 Boganovitas, if you will. And below that is 70 ascended masters. 
Now, ascended masters, and you ask, what are ascended masters? Well, ascended masters are basically people who became demon-possessed if they ever claim to be an ascended master, like Boy George and some of the other ones in the rock music industry. They claim to be an, an ascended master, but there are 70 ascended masters that were already named. And you know where Jesus shows up in that? As an ascended master. He's in the occult hierarchy as an ascended master. Hmm. Above him is other authorities. Above him is Satan himself. So when it's, But see, when they say Jesus, they don't view him as the master who bought them at all. Some of the occult believes it, and the way they try to promote it is Jesus was just, uh, he was just a man who became God. He ascended. See the, the twist on that? Introducing destructive heresies. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now swift according to God's timing. Just re keep reading on in Second Peter. And you find a day is, is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. And he is, he is, their destruction is there. And God's not asleep. He hadn't forgot about it or missed it. It says many will follow their sensuality. Huh. Their sensuality. It's been going on a long time. Hinduism, Buddhism, how much of the world do they, do they uh, control now? About a third of it. How much do the Muslims control? About a third of it. Believing in the wrong God. Others believe in many gods. And many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Now who is the truth? Not what. Who is the truth? So what are they going to malign? The truth. The way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. They found out a way to try and get around God and make some money off of it. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. It's not asleep. So <clears throat> these false Christs, see their, mesh, their method is to distort what is seen and what is thought. They want to twist it around. And part of what they're doing right now, the destructive heresies, is it's hard to even use words anymore. Have you noticed that? People want to shut other people up because every time you use a word, they've redefined it, and then that word's off limits. And what happens when they start limiting vocabularies of civilizations? They take control of them. Is what they do. What does Satan want to do? He wants to control the globe. He knows how to go about doing it. So what's he trying to do? Eliminate certain words from your vocabulary. Or redefine them in a way that they were never before known. Now verse 25. Behold. This is Jesus. I, Jesus, have told you. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, in advance. Told you in advance is all one word. Pra-lego. Pra is beforehand. Lego is to tell. And it's a perfect tense. Now, there was, <laughs> there was no need to make this a perfect tense other than for emphasis. He could have done the same thing with the present. He could have done the same thing with an aorist. But he put it in a perfect tense when it was spoke. 
and it means to speak beforehand. This is the only context where Jesus actually uses this word. The only place he uses it is here. He said, I've told you in advance. I've told you beforehand with results that are going to go on forever. He just issued a prophecy. He just told them what's going to happen. So Mark notes that they've been told everything that will directly affect them. Mark 13, 23, take heed, I've told you everything in advance. He puts that other word, everything, in there that Matthew didn't record. Matthew focuses on the message gave to his disciples that was to be pass on, passed on to those that was affected. The believers to know prophecies that affect both themselves and others so that others might also receive comfort. That passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, I hope you know automatically what that passage is. That passage for us in the church age is that the Lord one day will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel. Right? Trumpets will sound, we shall all be caught up together to meet him in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. We should learn passages so when people don't know what to think, what to do, how to handle certain situations, we as Christians, when we lose a loved one, don't need to grieve as those who have no hope. We need to have an assurance. That first song, Blessed Assurance, that was done. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. If you accept God's word as God's word, and really, not just blindly, it's because that's where the evidence is. Then you can take those passages. These things are written to you. Believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know you have eternal life. These things have been written. The truth of the word must become more real to us than the perceived circumstances of life. He's, right, he's talking to tribulate, great tribulational believers. Now we're not going to be there. Praise the Lord, we're not going to be there. But by application, does it look like the world is falling apart? Well, it's falling apart. <laughs> How do you say it's not falling apart? The world is falling apart. Oh, is that going to cost me eternity? No. Can I be calm in the midst of the storm? You know, sometimes he calms the storm. That's always what we pray for, isn't it? Usually he calms us in the middle of the storm. And the storm continues to rage. Behold, I've told you. So verse 26, so if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness. Context here is second advent, right? All right, but what's he teaching us? You better know the facts concerning the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the second advent. And so, here you are in a great trib, and somebody says, Behold, he's in the wilderness, let's go out there. Well, where are you? If you paid attention, you're in the wilderness too. <laughs> You've left Jerusalem. You're no longer there. So, it says, Do not go out. Behold, he's in the inner rooms. Another cry out. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west... So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Whoa, how fast is it going to happen? By application, the rapture is the same way. How fast is it going to take that we shall be transformed in the twinkling of an eye? From 1 Corinthians 15. 
How long does that take? When the Lord comes back, is he going to say, okay, you guys load up, get your passports out. We're going to check you in one at a time. Okay? And it's going to take hours and days and months and years. Uh-uh. It's going to take a split second. And we're going to be out of here. So we're, that's how fast it, it's, the description is. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Definitely talking about second advent. Because anybody that says the Messiah is walking around on the earth during the tribulation is a liar. They either consciously know what they're doing or they unconsciously have not learned the word of God. Because when the Lord comes back at the second advent, there is absolutely no mistake who he is. Part of the false message includes the, the proclamation that Christ is already alive. They tried that at Thessalonica. They received a letter that the day of the Lord had already come. That's why Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians. Okay? Because they got the wrong message. And he said, no, I've got to get this straightened out. So he writes them this, this other letter. Now, they're going to use magic tricks to try and prove this. Some of them may not be really magic tricks. There's supernatural power of Satan and all that group. But they're not to be believed. Because Jesus is not simply going to appear in the desert and come strolling into Jerusalem. Not going to happen. When he comes back, a spaceship didn't drop him off out there in the wilderness of Judea. And he's going to gather an entourage and be waiting for the palm branches to come out once again. Not going to happen. It's not the way he's going to return. His return will be of such a nature that all will know it. Nobody can counterfeit it. It cannot be countered. It's so spectacular. It'll be in an instant without warning. As Jesus had already told them in Luke 17, verse 22. Just listen to this passage. He said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You will not see it. They will say to you, look there. Look here. But do not go away. Do not run after them. For just like the lightning... When it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. When he comes, it's going to be of such a spectacular nature, there's no denying it. And just before the second advent, this the vultures gathering and all that, and if you keep reading in the book, you end up Revelation 19, it says he's going to gather all the birds together, the carrion birds, the vultures, the eagles, all those, those birds that eat dead carcasses. He's going to gather them all together for the great feast of the day of the Lord when he destroys all of his enemies. Zechariah 14 is where we turn there to Zechariah, if you would. If I can find it, I know it's in here somewhere. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14. Second Advent. Now see, this had been given. It, it, this prophecy had been there for hundreds of years before Christ is making these comments. So it's something the Jews already had. Zechariah 14.1, Behold, a day is coming for the 
Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. And he says, and I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Okay? It's like at the 70 A.D. It's all going to happen again just for the second advent. All will be gathered together before Israel. It says, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. There will be a remnant hold up in Jerusalem when the Lord comes back at the second advent. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Okay, that's totally different than the rapture, isn't it, when he takes us out of here? He doesn't do any fighting then. It's a whole different event. And seven years after that, when he comes back, he is going to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. It says, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's where we end up. He, what's he delivering now? The Olivet Discourse. What's he talking about? Which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Part of the Red Sea once, didn't he? Part of the mountain this time. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. You will flee like you fled before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and his holy ones with him. Who's that? That's us. Revelation 19. Put scripture together. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light. And the luminaries will dwindle. Didn't we read about the fourth trumpet? And then a third of the sun, a third of the stars. The lights went out, basically. With the second advent, all of them go out. It'll be a unique day known only to the Lord. Neither day nor night. And it will come about that at evening time, there will be light. The light will be Him. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, the other half to the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. It's going to go back similar to pre-flood whenever it is uh, the seasons are not so defined as what it appears. But a unique day. That's the second advent. And do you think everybody on the planet will know what's happened? I think so. So if he's out, they say he's in the wilderness, don't waste your time. Don't pack your go, don't take your go bag and go looking for him. Because he ain't there. When he comes back, you'll know it. And the exhortation is always, be found doing what you're supposed to be doing whenever he comes back. And that's the application to us, waiting for the rapture. Let's pray. Father, what a good day it has been. What a blessing it has been to be able to open up your word and Father, to be challenged by it once again. Father, we need to keep our heads screwed on straight in this day and time in which we live. We need to not be complacent. But, Father, we need to be those who uh, walk as lights in the world in the middle of a crooked and perverted generation. May we be that. May we honor you. May we be found doing what you want us to do when you come back. And, Father, may we all receive, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen.